Hey, your camera went over. Okay. Hey, here we go. Quaff, which could be sun on the horizon, condense, circle, time. I call with my heart, answer me, O Lord, and I will obey your decrees. I call out to you, save me, and I will keep your statutes. I rise above the dawn and cry for help. I put my hope in your word. My eyes stay open to the watches of the night, that I may meditate on your promise. Hear my voice in accordance with your love. Hear my voice in accordance with your love. that my life, O Lord, according to your law. Uh, those who devise wicked schemes near me, but they are far from your law. Yet, you are near me, O Lord, and your commands are true. Long ago, I learned from your statutes that you established them to last Okay, we got some prayer requests. Uh, I got some prayer requests in the email just a minute ago, and I didn't write them down. I didn't have time. So uh, there's some people out there that have uh, some needs that uh, we'll just remember them in general. Um, the Susan B. Anthony list is hiring in Florida. She needs 20 people. So if anybody is here in Florida watching and they want a job, it's a paying job. I don't know if it's uh, knocking on doors yet or if it's still just by phone, but you get paid, you know, not a bad wage. And uh, she's hiring. And I'll mention this again on Sunday, I hope. But uh, if anybody needs a job in Florida, let me know and I'll get you the lady's number and uh, we'll hook you up with her. And Elise has a kidney stone and uh, she's also pregnant. So things aren't going well when you're pregnant. You've got a kidney stone, which are very painful. So we want to pray for her. Becky. Um, got bit by a brown recluse spider, which can be really bad. She's on antibiotics. Jill uh, applied for a job and uh, is hoping to uh, hear some good news on that. An another call for you know another manager to call, and we'll hope that that happens because she definitely needs this job. And then Becky in Colorado has a virus, and uh, so we'll pray for her and the people on the prayer list that was sent to me a minute ago. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the chance to come into your presence and to pray about these things and pray for these people. And we certainly also thank you for the rain that you're giving us. It's been three or four days of really great rain, and uh, we're thankful for that. And we uh, want to pray for the doctor and Mabel. They're going to be leaving to go up north, and we pray for safe travels for them as they drive up north. And it's good to have them back in the church, even though they're going to be leaving after uh their first day coming back, they are going to be heading back up north even before we get to see them again. So we hope they have a good summer and you bless them up there. And Lord, we certainly thank you for all the good blessings you've given us, how good you are to us. And we thank you for the book of 2 Corinthians that we're going to finish today. We thank you for the wonderful journey we've had through it. And we would ask that the last few verses that we look at will be handled properly and that uh, uh, what is discussed here tonight will bring glory to you and that nothing wrong will be said concerning your precious word. And Lord, we pray these things that you will be glorified and we pray them in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, so here we are. We're in, I'm not going to read the uh, This Day in History today because I don't know how long these last verses are going to take. And if they don't take too long, I got something else we can do to close out the, the hour. Uh, but uh, if it takes the whole hour and a half, then that's the way it is. So we're in... Uh, 2 Corinthians 13, verse 6. Yeah, let me start on 5. All right. Is, uh, beginning of the paragraph. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you, unless, of course, you fail the test? In 6. 
And I trust that you will discover that we have not failed the test. Okay. Instead of failed the test, disqualified is what this one says. Other than that, it's the same. Okay, in verse 3, Paul noted that they seek a proof of Christ speaking in me, who is not weak towards you, but mighty in you. Rather than merely seeking a proof that he and his fellow apostles are in Christ and fully capable of demonstrating the power of Christ towards them, he asks them to examine themselves. As much as looking for the power of Christ in Paul, they needed to determine if they were even in the faith, something that some people definitely need to do. How could they rightly discern the source of Paul's power if they couldn't even determine if their own faith was sound? This is why he then admonished them by saying, test yourselves. Do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you unless indeed you are disqualified? Now comes his words to them based on this. But I trust that you will not know, you will know that we are not disqualified. In doing their own self-examination, they will then be able to discern the source of Paul's words and actions towards them. They will know that it is Christ speaking in him, and this entire line of thought follows so well with his previous words to them from chapter 2. Let me read you that. I hope I'm speaking loud enough because we got just pouring rain out there and it's pounding on the roof. But uh, chapter 2, verse 13, it says, I had no rest in my spirit because I did not find Titus my brother, but taking my leave of them, I departed from Macedonia. Now thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and through us diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. For we are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one we are the aroma of death leading to death and to the other the aroma of life leading to life. And who is sufficient for these things? For we are not as so many peddling the word of God, but as of sincerity, but as of from God, we speak in the sight of God in Christ. Life application. Just because someone is a believer in Christ, it does not mean that they have the gift of discernment. That's a kind of a category mistake that way too many Christians make. I know lots of Christians that have zero discernment. Okay, and then there's lots of Christians that are not really knowledgeable in the Bible, but they have great discernment. So, you know, it, it just depends. I mean, just because you have a lot of knowledge in the Scripture doesn't mean that you discern them well. People will take things completely out of context, even if they've been reading the Bible their whole life. They mix dispensations, and, you know, I mean, this is just the way it is. And we would hope that that wouldn't be the case, but uh, it, it is the case with many people. So there are preachers in a thousand denominations. Do they all have discernment? Apparently not, because they're all in different denominations, right? If they were all discerning things correctly, there would be one denomination. So the fact that you've got preachers in different denominations, you've got different doctrines like Calvinism, and you've got, uh, you know, Reformed theology, which kind of is Calvinism, but there are different shades of it. And then you've got, of course, Wesleyanism, and you've got, uh, uh, you know, 10,000 different doctrines. You've got dispensationalism and hyper-dispensationalism. Obviously, they are not all true. It's as obvious as the nose on your face. Is it pre-tribulation rapture? Is it mid-tribulation rapture? Is it post-tribulation rapture? You know, is there something else? Is there no rapture at all? If people had discernment, we wouldn't have these different views. Everybody would have the same view. See that? I'm not picking on people when I said what I said earlier. I'm just simply saying that is the truth of the matter. I know preachers that have been preaching for years and years and years, and their theology stinks. 
okay? They might be nice people, but I pity the poor people in the congregation that listen to their, you know, talks about certain areas in the Bible, which are so wrong. You know, oh, this church, the church replaced uh, Israel 2,000 years ago, and it, it, I'm sorry, that's just poor theology. But whatever, obviously not that... Uh, that they all have discernment because many come to entirely different conclusions on the same spiritual matters found within the Bible. For each of us to be able to discern what is correct and what is not, we need to do our own inward tests concerning our faith and we need to know the Bible ourselves. It is impossible to imagine that we have time for dinner out, nightly TV, football games, and so on, and yet we do not have time for reading our Bible and attending Bible studies. Okay, but the general sentiment among most of the people in the world is that the Bible doesn't matter. We had a president that has been excoriated for walking across the road from the White House to a church that every president that has ever been has gone to that church. Whether they're Episcopal or not, it's just the thing that presidents do. He walked over there because they were set on fire the night before, and he wanted to show the Christian world that he stood with Christianity, regardless of the doctrine of the church, that is irrelevant. He stood in front of that church with his Bible and he was making a statement. I support this book and I support the people that support this book. Okay. He was excoriated for it. And of course, the media lied about what occurred before him going over there. And they're still lying about it. Yesterday, I watched a briefing with him and they were still bringing up a lie. There were no, uh, what do you call it, the uh, tear, gas. tear gas. There was no tear gas. There was no disbursement of the people the way they claimed, and yet they are doing this because they hate this person. But that's not what the point is. The point is that at that church, they have a female pastor. Go read 1 Corinthians 2, 11 and 12. Okay, there's no discernment there. What? What did I say? Oh, okay. 1 Timothy 2, 11 and 12. Thank you for correcting me on that. Okay, 1 Timothy 2, 11 and 12. There is no discernment there. She supports homosexual issues. No discernment there. They don't hold to the Bible in any way, shape, or form. And yet she accused the president of misusing the Bible because he was standing out front with a Bible. Okay, this woman doesn't know anything about Scripture. Zero. Absolutely nothing. So this is something that we all have to do. We have to read our word and we have to attend studies. Take in what you hear, listen to the study, and then check what is said, because I'm going to say something that is completely different than the next guy down the road. And you've got to decide, was Charlie right? Was this guy right? How do you know? You're not going to know unless you read your Bible and read your Bible, and if you pray for discernment. Discernment doesn't come automatically, okay? What does James say? Pray for wisdom. wisdom. It doesn't come automatically. What is wisdom? You can have all the knowledge in the world and have no wisdom. Wisdom is the right application of knowledge. What's that? College professors. professors. They have all kinds of knowledge and they have zero wisdom. Zero. So there you go with that. Once again, it is impossible to imagine that we have time for dinner out, nightly TV, football games, and so on, and yet we don't have time for reading our Bible and attending Bible studies. I'm not saying the superior word Bible study. I'm saying whatever church you attend, make sure that you go to the Bible study. Be a part of that. Okay? 13.7. Now we pray to God that you will not do anything wrong. Not that people will see that we have stood the test, but that you will not do what is right, even though we may seem to have failed. Okay. It's a little different. Now I pray to God that you do no evil. Not that we should appear approved, but that you should do what is 
honorable, though we may seem disqualified. Okay, so he's taking the uh, position that even whatever with us, you need to make sure that you do what's honorable. So Paul has been discussing his need for discipline when he comes. And although, uh, and along with this, discipline must come a demonstration of his apostolic powers. Before his arrival, though, he asked them to examine themselves. His words of the last two verses, examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith, test yourselves, do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you are disqualified, but I trust that you will know that we are not disqualified. They are to conduct a self-evaluation to see if they are actually disqualified. Having said that to them, he now says, now I pray to God that you do no evil. His correction through the use of his apostolic powers implies that they are doing wrong. However, he would rather have them do right and there not be a need for that power to be wielded. In, in its use, he and those with him would certainly appear approved. This word approved is set in contrast to the word disqualified. Either you're approved or you're disqualified in what Paul is speaking about here. If he appeared approved, it would settle all the matters concerning the charges of the false apostles which they levied against him. And it would be a real positive note concerning him, but he would rather simply have them do right and let the charges against him stand. He's less concerned about himself than them examining themselves. As he says, that you should do what is honorable, though we may seem disqualified. Okay, he cares less about his own image. He cares less about his own standing in their eyes than he does that they are approved and that they will discern, pray about discernment, read the word, understand what is going on, and pursue what is correct. To him, it would be preferable for the Corinthians to think whatever ill they wanted about him if they were living properly. It was of higher value to him that they were approved in doing what is right than it would be for him to have a good name and a seemingly perfect reputation. This type of humility towards those he loved is seen elsewhere in his epistles. A remarkable example of this is found in Romans chapter 9, where it says this. Romans 9, For I wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh. So he is saying that I would rather me be cut off from the Lord and have them saved. So he is putting other people ahead of himself. He's doing it at the expense of himself. Obviously, that isn't going to happen, but if it could happen, he would rather it be the case. And the same thing is true with the church here. He's willing that they are in right standing and they think of him in whatever way they wanted, as long as that they were pursuing the Lord and they were doing it properly. It, it's sort of like what Jesus did. Are we willing to humble ourselves if it means that those who are weaker in the faith will be brought to a position of sound doctrine and right living? What value is our esteem in others' eyes if they are not living right? Rather, wouldn't it be better to be lowered in the eyes of those who are living for the Lord than to be esteemed by those who are not? There you go. Okay, 13.8. But we cannot do anything against it, but only for for the truth. With a cursory reading of this verse, it appears that Paul is speaking as a person who is incapable of working against the truth. We would then see it comparable to the words ascribed to George Washington, which said, I cannot tell a lie. That's right. Although this is a noble way of looking at it, Paul's words are more intense than that. 
they are somewhat comparable in type to the words of John the Baptist when he said, he must increase, but I must decrease. That's John 3.30. The we can do nothing against the truth isn't speaking of his personal abilities so much as that of the power of the Holy Spirit in him as an apostle. In essence, I have no ability to work the power of my apostleship against the truth because of the Holy Spirit in me. Thus, the reciprocal is also true. I only have the power to work in accord with the truth in my apostolic ministry because of the Holy Spirit in me. Now, I get a lot of emails and people will try to challenge me on something or they'll ask something that uh, will take an answer beyond scripture. And I will say, I cannot go beyond what this says. And I do that quite often. People ask me about divorce, for example. You know, uh, my, uh, my uh, I don't know. I don't want to give an example that could clue somebody into somebody else's life, but there's a problem in a marriage and there's talk about a divorce, okay? Whatever the problem is. And my answer always has to be sexual immorality. That is it. That's the only reason that the Bible gives for a divorce. That is it, sexual immorality. I cannot go beyond that. Now, that may not be the Holy Spirit in me. It made me just me saying this is what the Word said, which is written by the Holy Spirit. Through men of God, the Holy Spirit wrote out these words. But people will try to get me to say things that are beyond what the Bible says, and I can't do it. Okay, People will ask me questions about women teaching and preaching. I'm sorry, I cannot go beyond what is written. These are prescriptive letters of Paul. They are inspired by the Holy Spirit. They are for this dispensation, and they are what they are. I cannot violate what it says. You know, now, they'll ask me questions after that. Well, what about a woman's ministry? The Bible doesn't address that, so I don't care. It doesn't make any difference at all in the world to me if a woman has a woman's ministry, because it doesn't even address that issue, okay? If a woman wants to go out and teach women, that's fine. But I cannot say it's okay for a woman to have a man in a church, because this is an example of what I'm getting at. A woman wants to have a woman's ministry, and the husband starts attending. I'm sorry, I can't answer that question in the positive. I have to say, you need to either not teach, or you need to tell him to leave. Those are your only two options, because you are not allowed to, have, to teach or have authority over a man. That's what the Bible says. So when it comes to that, that is the type of thing that Paul is speaking about here. He's not saying that he's some super apostle or something. He is saying that he is bound by the Holy Spirit to not go beyond what is inside of him. I am bound by the Holy Spirit to not go beyond what the Holy Spirit has given. Okay, that's all there is to it. And that's, that's just the way it is. Okay, um, as a man, though, Paul had the ability to lie or to sin in any other way. But when he was exercising the powers of his apostleship, this was not possible because the Holy Spirit is God and can in no way work unrighteousness. And further, he can in no way contradict himself. That's why, you know, I read this uh, article by some atheist this past week or so, and it was talking about all the contradictions in the Bible. Well, no man can see God, and yet it says back in the book of Exodus that they saw God, and they ate and drank and whatever, and they, they went all through the Bible, and they took all of these things, and they laid them out, and they showed all of the contradictions in the Bible, and they were doing it completely out of the context in which was given, okay? Can anybody here see the Lord, L-O-R-D? Yes, the answer is yes. Abraham was outside, and three men walked up to him, and it clearly identifies him as Jehovah. Right in the Bible, it says he is the Lord. When Gideon had somebody come up to him, he said, you know, he called him Adonai, my Lord, which is 
just a, an address for a person. By the time he was done speaking with that person, he was calling him Adonai, meaning the Lord. So yes, he, you can see the Lord if he is incarnate. You cannot see the Lord if he is not incarnate. In other words, if it is the divine nature of God, you cannot see that. If it is the human nature, meaning Christ Jesus, then you can see that because it is one Lord. Jesus Christ is one Lord. He is the Lord God. We can see him, and yet we cannot see his infinite nature, okay? So we have to keep these things in context. And when you start saying there's a contradiction between this and this, when there isn't, it's because you don't understand what God is doing in redemptive history. And so you say, oh, there's an obvious logical conclusion here or um, contradiction here, when there is not. There's no contradiction at all. But we need to take those things in the right context. Paul could not write something that is in Scripture that is going to contradict something else. He could not do it. Because if he did, suppose he wrote letters to other churches and he had something in there that was not correct. They're not in the Bible, are they? He wrote something and he made an error, then that's not included in the Bible. What is in the Bible is inspired by God through the hand of Paul, through the hand of Peter, through the hand of John, etc. And it is without contradiction. It is without error. But it has to be taken in the proper context. As I always say, the five big rules of uh, proper uh, hermeneutics, the first five are, is it prescriptive? Is it descriptive? And context, context, context. That's right. You get the last three right and the rest of them will fall into place. The first two are very important though. Okay. So Paul's words here demonstrate that when he comes and makes judgments to enforce the standards of the church, his actions will be perfectly just. This is not because he is perfect, but because the Holy Spirit who would speak through him is perfect. Life application. Today, many claim they have the powers of an apostle or some other Holy Spirit-designated ability, which then elevates them to a position of power within the church. Some go so far as to say that when you speak against them, and I've seen people actually post this on Facebook many times, you are committing a crime against the Holy Spirit. You are blaspheming the Holy Spirit because they. Were, I've seen people say this. I am filled with the Holy Spirit of God, and therefore, when you accuse me, you are blaspheming the Holy Spirit, and you can never be saved. I've seen people actually say that in posts on Facebook. Can you imagine that? That is an arrogant person there. That is a truly arrogant person. But anyway, that's the kind of thing that people feel way too uh, uh, high about themselves. Have they found a hat big enough? Yeah, there's no hat big enough for that head. That's right. Okay. Anyway, reject such people as perverse and stay far, far away from them. The Bible is written. It is our source for determining if someone is speaking the truth concerning God or not. We don't need to go outside of Scripture to find that information. We have it right here. God spent 1,600 years giving us this book. Okay. We're going to live at best 90 or 100 years and probably much less than that, most of us, okay? We're just here for a very short time and we think we have all the answers in the world. God himself, who is outside of time and knows the end from the beginning, took 1,600 years of redemptive history to give us this word. And we think we know it all. It is our source, the Bible, for determining if someone is speaking the truth concerning God or not. Such fools, and I have no problem calling them fools, will be dealt with by God. But for now, let them play alone in their own deluded unhouse. Okay? 13.9. We are glad whenever we are weak, but you are strong. And our prayers for you 
for your perfection. Our prayer is for your perfection. Okay, a little different here. For we are glad when we are weak and you are strong. And this also we pray that you may be made complete. Okay, a little different perfection and complete, but whatever. Okay, these words follow logically with what he just said in the previous verse. Paul is speaking of the spiritual state of the Corinthians. If they are spiritually strong, there will be no need for a demonstration of the Holy Spirit's power through the apostles. In essence, they will appear weak because everything is a-okay, meaning the apostles. Should the Corinthians be weak in their walk, then they would need to be strong in the use of their apostolic powers. Okay, we Christians, then we need to exercise our authority. If you are strong, then we will appear weak because we don't need to do anything. Either way, therefore, this contrast is given not as any physical strength weakness, but in connection with spiritual matters. In such matters, he says that we are glad when we are weak and you are strong. More than just being a state of proper functioning, it was a point of gladness for Paul. And this should be the truth with any pastor. Think of it. If you go to church that knows their Bible well, that is well-grounded and isn't pulling on their face all day long and worrying about every little thing that happens, then that pastor can appear as weak as he wants. He doesn't have to go into all these great lengths to take care of these people. But if they're all worried about everything and they're always coming up to him and what do I do about this? And, what do I, and they call you at three o'clock in the morning and, you know, then he has to appear strong. Okay. And this is what Paul is saying. He's saying that if you are strong and if you've examined yourself and you've done all of these things, then I can appear as weak as I want. It doesn't make any difference. I don't need to demonstrate the power of the Holy Spirit. But if you are weak, then we have to be strong. Either way, that's the way it is. Okay. So if one has, a, if he has a spiritually strong congregation, a pastor, then his job of teaching them should be rather easy. If he has one that is dysfunctional and spiritually misguided, as Paul does with the Corinthians, then of course it would be a point of mourning and constant strife. How happy is the pastor then who doesn't need to be strong in his exercising his knowledge and authority, but rather to be weak in appearance because of the strength of the congregants? Oh, the joy of any pastor. I got a church that never calls me. They, they just let me live my life just like I let them live their life. And they don't pester me over little things and because they read their word. They check out what the word says. If they have uh, contradiction in their thought, then they sit down and they think about it. Maybe during dinner, they talk to their family about it. Or they call a friend and they say, let's resolve this, okay? But at some point, if they can't get it resolved, then they go to the pastor. But he doesn't have a constant needling of people. All right. And I'm not saying me. I'm just saying any pastor. These I typed years ago before I was a pastor. So I'm not picking on anybody here. And I'm not. But I'm saying that that is what makes a pastor happy, because just like any other person in the world, they want to go to sleep at a regular time. They want to, you know, if they're watching TV, they don't want to be bothered with things, etc. Yeah, we were talking about sleep before church here. We got somebody here that goes to, to sleep at 630. That is I, that is a dream of mine. Oh, my gosh. That would be wonderful. Anyway. Um, pastors like then, like Paul here should say, and this also, we pray that you may be made complete. This should be the goal of every pastor. Paul looked for growth and spiritual adulthood in those he ministered to. If they're spiritually adults, then he can just go out and, you know, make tents or go golfing or whatever he wants to do. The word for completion in this verse is katartesis. It is only used here in the New Testament and means preparing or making fit. 
However, there is a corresponding verb found in the New Testament, which is used by Matthew and by Mark to indicate the mending of fishing nets. Thus, it gives the idea of restoring something. And this is exactly what Paul has been working towards in the Corinthians, a restoration of spiritual health. That is what he wants for them so that he can come and he can have dinner with them and they can fellowship. And then on Sunday, he can give a sermon and he doesn't have to be constantly worried about them being drawn away by false teachers and watching goofy stuff on YouTube and various videos that whatever. It is true that all pastors should look for a mature congregation who are spiritually healthy and able to conduct their own lives well, but some pastors actually want the opposite, and I know some that have been this way. By having a congregation of spiritually weak people under him, he can then exercise control over them. That is a very scary position to be in. This can even lead to dangerous cults. Think of the guy, uh, Guinea. Uh, uh, well, Koresh is one of them. I was thinking of Jim Jones, but uh, Koresh is one of them. These people want weak people under them. They can manipulate them. They, If they don't know their Bible, if they have no training in their Bible, then David Koresh claimed that he was the Lamb of God that is referenced in the book of Revelation. And they all thought, this is the Lamb of God. And so what did they do? They allowed him to sleep with all of their wives. That, yeah, that was one of the, the things that they allowed him to do. And all the other crazy things that they did believing him because they never picked up their Bible and checked anything. They just believed him, okay? This, as I said, can lead into dangerous cults. If those who listened to Joseph Smith were properly educated in theology, even in just a regular church, if that church had a decent theology, they would have abandoned him and there would be no Mormonism today. It wouldn't exist. Instead, the world is filled, literally filled with this aberrant cult. I read an article just today of Mormons that were down in South America doing missionary work. They're over in Asia. They're in Korea. They're in uh, Europe. They're in Africa. They're all over the world because a bunch of people followed a man and didn't listen to what their first pastor said, and they didn't read their Bible when they were young, okay? They were all looking for spiritual guidance. He was looking for people that were weak in that regard, and they followed him. And here we have this all over the world today. Life application. If you are in a congregation where you are not being instructed on the deeper tenets of theology, you need to find another church. Doctrines such as the Trinity, the human divine nature of Jesus, election, predestination, sin and repentance, and so on should be regularly brought into Bible studies. How do you do that? By studying the Bible. I was talking to somebody just who was it? Anyway, it was somebody. Somebody sent me an email, and I said, I saw this myself. Um, uh, they go to a church, and they don't open the Bible. Instead, they have a study about a commentary by some guy, okay? They don't even open the Bible. They just read it. What good is that? And my answer to him was, when I went out to preach at a uh, SBC church in the middle of the state, they asked me to come and preach, and uh, I went out there, and as soon as I got there, what did they open? They said, oh, it's time for Bible study. And they opened up the Southern Baptist Convention handbook. And that's what they studied. They never opened their Bible at all. So, you know, it, that's terrible. Imagine that. A Bible study means you're supposed to study the Bible. Yeah, okay. So these are not rabbit trails, but they are foundational issues which need to be taught and understood by all congregants. Now, when I do a rabbit trail, 
I try to keep it in the context of whatever we're talking about. I try to say this is an example that I'm applying to the particular verse I'm in. And I always apologize after doing rabbit trails because I kind of get sidetracked and I think, you know, maybe I'm wasting people's time. Somebody emailed me this past week and he said, I love the, Bible, the rabbit trails because you always answer a question that I've been wondering about that otherwise I would have emailed you on. And I thought, well, I need more rabbit trails because that'll save me time. Anyway, that's my little thing about that today. Um, 1310. Oh, what? Would you please repeat that Greek word, katartisis. Uh, katartisis. K-A-T-A-R-T-I-S-I-S. Katartisis. Okay, 1310. Okay, this is why I write these things when I am absent. That when I come, I may not have to be harsh in my use of authority. The authority that the Lord gave me for building you up, not for tearing you down. Okay, exact same thought, but completely different words. It's worth reading. Therefore, I write these things being absent, lest being present, I should use sharpness according to the authority which the Lord has given me for edification and not for destruction. So I said basically the same thing. They just said it completely differently. Okay, the words here are given with the greatest humility. Paul, I'm talking about. They are not so much of an apology as many take them, but rather they are simply a statement of fact. Therefore, the word therefore is given as a summary of his words since verse 1. And even inclusive of other verses where he's promised to use his authority if necessary. I write these things being absent, that's Paul's words, shows that he truly intends for his words to be read, accepted, and acted upon before he comes. Okay, that way hopefully they will have a better understanding of what they're going to be dealing with when Paul does come. It is his hope that his words, while absent, will be sufficient to bring about all necessary correction within the church. That is his hope. That is his desire. And then he says, lest being present, I should use sharpness. That defines what would be necessary if the letter does not have its intended effect. In this clause, the word translated as sharpness is an adverb. Therefore, Vincent's word study suggests that to give the force of the adverb, it should read, deal sharply. If dealing sharply is necessary, it will be according to the authority which the Lord has given me. Paul's words, the, the authority the Lord has given me. This means his, as we talked about in the previous verse, his apostolic authority. It is based on, at a discussion with somebody about uh, apostles, just, uh, I think it was this morning or maybe it was last night, okay, and they had some questions about that. And I said, there are no apostles today. I say this in Bible class from time to time. You can say I'm an apostle, as I've said, of the superior word. Apostle, the only thing the word apostle means is sent ones. That's right. Who is the sender? That is the question. If they say I am an apostle of Jesus Christ, then they're deluded because Jesus Christ did not send them. He is gone. He is in heaven. He ascended, and we're not going to see him until the rapture, and the world is not going to see him until his second coming. Okay, that's correct. There are no apostles of Jesus Christ. To hold that title is to dismiss everything that the Bible relays concerning the appointment of these men of God who were given this for the instruction of the early church, for the writing of the Bible, and for leading the church into sound theology. Okay. This means his apostolic authority, Paul's apostolic authority. It is based on his selection by Christ as the apostle to the Gentiles. And it will come with a demonstration of power and of the Holy Spirit. Paul is hoping that this will not be necessary, but it should be so. 
He, if it should be so, he will use it for, as he says, edification. That means building up and not destruction. He will edify, he will build up and not raise or tear down. It is neither the intent of Paul nor the desire of the Lord to destroy a church, nor is it even to destroy those in the church who are not walking according to the word. Because if it was in 1 Corinthians 5, that guy would have died. Instead, Paul said, hand him over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that is spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Rather, it is always desirable to find correction and repentance within the body. Once again, does anybody remember what the word repentance means? Change your mind. Change your mind. That's right. That's metanoia. Just change your mind. The seven letters to the seven churches. This is not hyperdispensationalism here. We believe those seven letters were written to the church age. Okay. After Revelation 4 verse 2, it is written about Israel. The church is never mentioned again, but the first Three chapters of Revelation are written to the church about the church during this dispensation, okay? Those in the church, um, uh, where was I? Churches in Revelation make this abundantly clear. Only when such edification is not found will stronger actions be effected. It is notice, notable that what Paul says in this verse was already addressed by him in verses 10, 8 through 11. We'll go there and we'll see what he said. 10, 8. For even if I should boast somewhat more about our authority, which the Lord gave us for edification and not for your destruction, I shall not be ashamed, lest I seem to terrify you by letters. For his letters, they say, are weighty and powerful, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech is contemptible. Let such a person consider this, that what we are in word by letters, when we are absent, such will also be indeed when we are present. Therefore, or there in that that I just read, he spoke of his actions being for edification and not for destruction. And he noted that the tenor in his letters were weighty and powerful, but that when present, he seemed weak. Paul has clearly shown that this will not be the case if it is necessary. He's filled with the Spirit. He's an apostle of Jesus Christ. He is there to build churches, to establish them, and then to build them up. The power will be demonstrated if it is necessary. If it's not, then he can appear as weak as he wants around him. Life application. It is always preferable to build up and to edify rather than to destroy. This should be the goal in our lives for strained friendships, difficult work situations, trials within a church, and for other such reasons. Sometimes it's not possible. Sometimes things just can't be mended, but this should be our hope and our desire, and we should pray about those things. Let us always endeavor to be peacemakers when possible, when possible, okay, yes, okay, so if we're if we're looking to edify and not tear down, and we are also to be discerning, what do we do in situation like the chaos we see today? There's not this? much we can do because i I was thinking about that today. The chaos we are seeing today is spiritual. It is spiritual. It is. These people belong to the devil, and the devil is using them yeah. for his purposes. Right. There is very little you can do but except pray about it. Brothers and sisters in Christ that are taking are that. Saying, I understand that. I am guilty. I am guilty. I'm guilty. I'm part of the problem. How are you part of the problem if you have called upon Jesus and you've been forgiven for your sins? I understand that. I, I completely so understand how that. Do you that? How well, do you, get on the you know, same page? for all you know, they may not even be 
Christians. But if they are true Christians, this is something that you, what you need to do is you need to tell them to read this book because they are obviously not reading this book. There's if, a ton of people it, I work with. Well, it sends a through my body. if they if you work with them and this person that's speaking right now, you can't see the individual, but uh, uh, this person is in the ministry in a certain capacity. And uh, it, it is unfortunately a denomination which is doing the uh, nosedive right now. And these people are should be they should be in the word. And as I said, I can give you a hint as to what denomination it is. It's the one that opened the Southern Baptist manual instead of the Bible during a Bible study. And if they're doing this all over the Southern Baptist Convention, then there is a real problem in that church, okay? They are taking the opinions of people, just like they did with the Methodists in their book of discipline, and just like the, anytime you have anything other than the Bible as your directives and as your structure, then you are going. It's not that you might fall, you are going to fall. Anytime you add something in a church to this word, you are going to fall. It will eventually happen when you have a seminary. And the seminary is, all seminaries start out looking to honor the Lord, don't they? That is why they do. Oh, all these seminaries are falling apart and we need to start something to get people back to the word of God. And then what happens? John Doe is the Hebrew teacher. He's very good. He loves the Lord and he kicks off right in the middle of the semester. And we have to fill the Hebrew class. And so what do they do? They compromise. And they hire somebody that does know Hebrew very well, but doesn't care about the Bible. All they care about is showing how smart they are, which my mother said a while ago. You get professors, they have a lot of knowledge, but they don't have wisdom. They have not applied the knowledge into an appreciation of what God is doing in the Bible and in the Hebrew language, for example. And so they compromise and they hire somebody without... We need somebody right now. And of course, the person turns out to be very personable. And so all the students give him a great rating, even though he's telling the students that, well, the Bible really, it's got contradictions. And then it's got the Hebrew uh, manuscripts have been manipulated and on and on and on. He's questioning, he's calling into question these students' faith. But now it's too late. He's in there, he's teaching. And the next thing you know, that seminary starts going down. It used to be that it would take 20 or 30 or 80 years for that to happen. Now it's happening in five to six years because people move quickly. We we don't stay in the same place anymore. We find out about a better paying job at a uh, better uh, seminary. And this is what happens. And very quickly, seminaries that start wonderfully nosedive very quickly. Okay. And that's not because the seminary didn't start on the right foot. It's because the seminary compromised. And that's what happens in churches. They compromise. That's the answer to your question. I'm sorry. There's nothing outside of this word that I can tell you that will help that problem except getting into this word and taking it in context and attending Bible studies where people actually revere God because he has given us his redemptive plan and he sent his son to die for us. So the end of Romans 12, which kind of addresses this too. Okay. I, I, you know, there's, there are things that aren't said but I write there, especially on, eight, on, on uh, what's it, 18, if at all possible, as much as it depends on you, but peaceably with all men. But right. Like, Sometimes it's not possible. Like, you know, and that's why he said that, if at all possible. Right. Sometimes right. it's so not. Sometimes letting people know that they are going off the cliff. That's right. In certain, certain terms. I, mean, I had that just 20 minutes ago. Mm -hmm. Somebody posted a lie about Trump on there. What did they do? They posted the Babylon Bee. Yeah, they posted the Babylon Bee where it says that Trump says that I've converted more people than Jesus or something like that. 
and they were they were maligning Trump, saying, look at what a terrible person he is. And I said, this is a spoof site. And they came back and they called me a racist. <laughs> it's a spoof site. So what did I do? You know what I did? Block them. I'll never see that person again. I don't need to be talked to like that. All I did was point out a fact. This is a spoof site. Okay? Uh, good. I, I just, I don't need this anymore. If, if at all possible. In that case, it wasn't. It wasn't possible and I'm not going to worry about it anymore. So let's go on. Um, let's see here. Uh, I read 10, 8 through 11. He spoke of edification. We're in, uh, yeah, we're still in 10. Okay, life application. I think I read it. We'll read it again. It is always preferable to build up and edify rather than to destroy. I did read this. This should be the goal in our lives for strained friendships, difficult work situations, trials within a church, and for other such reasons. Let us always endeavor. It doesn't mean we can, but endeavor to be peacemakers when possible. Okay, 11. Finally, bro. Goodbye. Aim for perfection. Listen to my appeal. Be of one mind. Live in peace. God of love and peace will be with you. Okay, close but different. Finally, brethren, farewell. Be complete. Be of good comfort. Be of one mind. Live in peace. And very close, the God of love and peace will be with you. So a little different there in the middle. Okay, Paul begins his final words here with the statement, finally, brethren, farewell. He did that, I think it's in Ephesians, he said finally, and then he wrote for two more chapters. So sometimes finally doesn't mean finally with Paul. But anyway, first, despite all of the problems associated with the church and all of the questions about their walk and the application of proper doctrine among them, he never does what? He never questions their salvation. You will never find that in Paul's writings or in Peter's writings or in anybody, anywhere else in the New Testament. You will never see somebody's salvation questioned. It's not in there. You're not going to find the doctrine of you can lose your salvation in scripture, okay? If you want to follow that thought logically, just start with today on 1 John chapter 5. I'm doing the commentary. I typed one for 1 John 5 19, I think, today. I've got two more and I'll be done with the book. And you will see at the end of the book, John is very clear about eternal salvation. They're all in accord with that, that premise, Nobody questions another person's salvation, and they all teach the doctrine of eternal salvation. You cannot lose your salvation. I went so far as to say in my commentary that I typed this morning that if you are in a church where they are teaching that, you need to leave that church. You are depending on your works to keep being saved, which means that you are never saved by grace through faith. Because if you have to do something to keep your salvation, then it was never, never of grace. Never. The other thing, too, is that they... They were all in accord with, with eternal salvation, but they were also preaching the gospel. That's right. The gospel. One gospel. That's it. There are not two gospels, one for Jews and one for Gentiles. There is one gospel. Okay? He never questioned their salvation. Instead, he counts them as brethren. It is a reminder of his continued proclamation that if someone is saved, they will remain saved, or he will. He never questions this. Secondly, the word farewell hang on, is literally rejoice. Charles Ellicott notes that it is the standard way that Greeks parted, and so the word being translated as farewell is acceptable, and it makes the word understandable to an English reading audience. If only we remember that it was used in all the fullness of its meaning. Rejoice! Let that be our last word to you. That's Charles Ellicott's commentary. After this, he petitions them to be complete, 
He is asking them to listen to the words he has written and apply them to their lives. In doing so, the dysfunction and disorder which they continue to experience will be taken away. In turn, they will be a properly functioning and healthy congregation where all things find their correct place. He is petitioning them for wholeness in their life and conduct before the Lord. Be of comfort, that's Paul's words, is what will naturally result from accepting his counsel and acting upon it. There are promises in the gospel which go beyond salvation. They lead to harmony in this life and rewards in the next. In order to secure those things, a right application is necessary. If this is accomplished, then this comfort Paul petitions for them, it will be realized. And then he says, be of one mind. It is a goal that he has directed them towards in both of his letters to them. For us, it is by applying all all, not some of it, not out of context, but all of Scripture to our lives. When we are united in God's Word, then we will be of one mind. In a united mind, the pitfalls which he noted in 1 Corinthians 12, 20 will be avoided. Instead of those things, there will be harmony, and they, and thus us, all of us here today, will live in peace. It has to be founded on the Word of God, or there will be disharmony. Living in peace comes from being of one mind, and it is a blessed state that all believers should work for in this life, in which they should anticipate with all their hearts, because it is a foreshadowing of the true peace, which will be realized when we are gathered to the Lord. If this is the goal of the congregation, it will permeate their lives, and it will be a mark of the true Christian fellowship, which is often lacking because of personal strife and or ambition. The verse closes with the words, and the God of love and peace will be with you. According to scripture, God is love. He is love. Therefore, we are to emulate him. In doing so, he will be among us in an intimate way. 1 John speaks a lot about that. As God doesn't change, then his love never increases nor decreases. Okay, I know that's kind of hard to understand, but there is no change in God. God is impassionate. He doesn't get loving. He doesn't get angry. When it says things like that in the Bible, that is anthropomorphism. It is attributes being assigned to God so that we can understand what's going. God doesn't get more loving. He doesn't get lo less loving. We change in relation to him. That's how it is. What's that? Pillar. Yeah, the pillar. The pillar never changes, but people can walk around the pillar and be on one side, which says good on it, and the other side says bad. We change in relation to the unchanging God. And when we do... We get on his angry side, or we get on his good side, or whatever. That's how that works, okay? God does not change. His love neither increases nor decreases. Rather, it is we who move in relation to him. His love will be realized more fully when we are loving towards each other and towards him, okay? He is also the author of peace. Therefore, in pursuing peace, harmony, and contentment, we will be emulating him. He will be with us, and he will bless us for pursuing this blessed state. This final clause is a conditional one, then. The God of love and peace, being with us, is dependent on our actions. When we are filled with strife, backbiting, anger, and contention, his presence will not be there as it should. But when these things are put aside and we pursue love and peace... His presence will permeate us and our fellowship. That's why it says in the Bible, be filled with the Holy Spirit. And people love to say, well, I'm filled with the Spirit of God. 
It is a passive action. When Paul writes, be filled with the Spirit, the verb is passive. We allow him to fill us by fellowshipping, by praising him, by worshiping him, by praying, and by studying the word. Those are the ways that we are filled with the Holy Spirit. It's not an active filling that charismatic churches love to cling to. In fact, it's contrary to what the Bible says, and so it's not real. Okay? Life application. If we want peace, then we need to be peacemakers. If we want to experience love, then we need to receive God's love and share it among one another. Let us pursue this with all of our hearts, knowing that a portion of our rewards and losses at our judgment will be based on these things. That's kind of a scary thought for you, isn't it? Okay, 1312. Okay, was that it? That is it. Okay. Paul just said, finally, brethren, farewell. Be complete, be of good comfort, be of one mind, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Continuing on now in the hopes they will follow that advice. And in order to promote the general good of the congregation, he tells them to greet one another with a holy kiss. This was and still is the custom in many parts of the world. You're going to hear this again as we go through the Bible because I pretty much cut and pasted, because Paul says this elsewhere, this commentary. So you'll hear it again someday, but that's okay. I mean, I made some changes maybe, but it's pretty much the same thing. But for now, greet one another with a holy kiss. This was and is the custom in many parts of the world. The kiss is intended as a greeting, just as Western nations today do what? That's right. We shake hands or possibly hug. Yeah, well, not anymore. We elbow bump. Depending on familiarity, we do different things. In the Far East, a deep, respectful bow is given in substitute of this. If you go up to somebody and hug them, they will be mortified. You will never get invited anywhere with that person again. I assure you of it. Okay, although Paul's letters are prescriptive, intent must always be considered. Is Paul mandating that all people in all churches meet one another with a holy kiss? The answer is no. The reason why this is important is because there are small pockets of churches that mandate this even today and even in Western societies such as the United States. They take this verse and they say it's in the Bible, we must do it. Okay, however, the intent of the kiss of greeting is cultural. It's not merely biblical. Proof of this follows from the first kiss noted in the Bible in Genesis 27:26, when Isaac blessed his son Jacob before he departed to Padan Aram. Okay, from that point, the kiss is seen among the covenant people and among those who aren't yet in the covenant, thus demonstrating the cultural nature of the greeting. It is used in the same way we use a handshake. When Jacob met Rachel, without knowing her in any familiar way yet, he kissed her. In 2 Samuel 20, 9 and 10, let me read it to you just so that you know where we're at. 2 Samuel 20, 2 Samuel 14, 18, 19, 20, 9 and 10. It says, Then Joab said to Amasa, Are you in health, my brother? And Joab took Amasa by the beard with his right hand to kiss him. But Amasa did not notice the sword that was in Joab's hand, and he struck him with it in the stomach, and his entrails poured out on the ground, and he did not strike him again. Thus he died. Then Joab and Abishai, his brother, pursued Sheba, the son of Bichri. Okay, so there you go. The following exchange that I just read you with a kiss ends in death. In 1 Samuel 20, verse 41, David and Jonathan, close male friends, gave a fraternal kiss in accord with the culture before departing. In Proverbs 27, 6 notes, faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. 
This demonstrates clearly that the kiss is cultural because even enemies will kiss rather than shake hands. You see Arabs do it all the time. One nation hates the other nation, and yet when they meet in diplom diplomacy or diplomatic circles, they always kiss each other, okay? This is seen in these parts of the world today. And when leaders who are at war with each other still greet one another with a kiss, Exchanging kisses with shaking of hands in this proverb would hold exactly the same meaning and intent. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the shaking of hands of an enemy is deceitful, okay? It would have the same meaning. And as a premier example of this, here we go between Jesus and Simon the Pharisee. And he said to him, you have rightly judged. Then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet. But she has washed my feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head. You gave me no kiss, but this woman has not ceased to kiss my feet since the time I came in. You did not anoint my head with oil, but this woman has anointed my feet with fragrant oil. Therefore, I say to you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. And of course, the most famous kiss in all of human history is recorded, that's right, concerning Judas' betrayal of Jesus and reflects the sentiment of Psalm 27, 6 perfectly. It is important then to understand the cultural nature of this admonition by Paul, lest we get swept up into legalism over something which is actually not intended for all cultures and in all situations. If a person with an immune deficiency were to use this verse in a prescriptive manner, he could soon be dead from receiving the germs of others. We had a person that attended this church for a long time, and she could not hug anybody, and we're a hugging church, okay? She couldn't do that. Finally, she said, I just can't come here because I'm afraid that somebody's going to come up and I'm going to die, okay? Finally, the kisses in these and other verses throughout the Bible, which are between men and men, such as David and Jonathan noted above, are not in any way intended to convey the perverse sin of homosexuality as modern liberals often like to imply. They are merely cultural and welcoming displays as just as handshakes are today. To imply this in their writings shows a disregard for God's order in the natural world, but they do use those verses. Paul ends this thought with, the churches of Christ greet you. This carries on the warmth that has been transmitted so far. He has gone from personal greetings to personal recommendations for continued harmony and love, and has finished with extended greetings from many others. He has been careful to show that the bonds of Christian love extend out in all ways and to all those who are believers. Life application. If, if you are in Rome, do as, the do as the Romans do. If you are in Japan, do as they do. It would not be appropriate. I know this being married to a Japanese and having, having spent six years almost to the day in Japan, it would not be appropriate to go to a church in the Far East and attempt to hug, kiss, or even shake the hands of another unless they first offered. If you are a Mid-Eastern, if you're in a Mid-Eastern area, a fraternal kiss may accompany a greeting. In America, a hearty handshake and maybe a friendly hug is the custom. The intent of Paul's words is promoting warmth and harmony between believers, not causing offense. Okay, 1313. What was that Psalm's reference there? Psalm 27.6. Okay, 1313. All the saints send their greetings. All the saints greet you. As the letter begins to close, Paul reminds the Corinthians that they are still beloved by the members of the other churches. 
In other words, he hasn't maligned them in any way, and he hasn't led them to believe that the church in Corinth wasn't worthy of their greeting. Instead, he notes to those around him that he was writing to the Corinthians, and they in turn asked for their greetings to be passed on to them. It is a sign that Paul had presented the church at Corinth to them as a group of fellow Christians. The first letter to the Corinthians ended with the statement, the churches of Asia greet you. Now in ending this letter, he says, all the saints greet you. It is a note then that wherever he was, he considered all of the churches and their members as a part of the greater church universal. <clears throat> it is his intent to ensure that they felt this bond of the greater family through his words. Life application. It is important to not divide what God has joined together. When a church is in right standing with the Lord, and I say that right standing with the Lord, because as I said, the Episcopal church that Trump went to is not right standing with the Lord. So you can chuck them out the window. But when they are, they should be considered as brothers and sisters in Christ. Lesser doctrinal differences are to be expected, but those who hold to proper orthodoxy in the greater issues should be treated with the kind respect which Paul shows in his letters to the churches that he addresses. Okay? Final verse of the book. <clears throat> May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. Amen, it says. Yours doesn't. Okay. It does not. Yes, that's true. Some do, some don't. What? Yes, that's, that's correct. 1314. This is the last of 257 verses of the book of 2 Corinthians. Paul ends this marvelous epistle with words reflecting the nature of God revealed in the pages of Scripture, that of the Trinity, as Burke just said. Charles Ellicott notes that it is not without special significance that the epistle, which has been almost to the very close the most agitated and stormy of all that came from St. Paul's pen, should end with a benediction which, as being fuller than any other found in the New Testament. The words are rich and alive. They reflect both a prayer of blessing and a hope for the ending of the strife and division which so permeated the church at Corinth. And so he begins with the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Normally, words describing the Trinity do not begin with Jesus, but with God, implying God the Father. However, the thoughts are inverted here. The order he has chosen is important to Christian theology because it shows that there is really one God revealed in three persons, without any inequality between the three. If there were, Paul's words would be most inappropriate. However, this shows that they truly are co-equal within the Godhead. His words, rather than noting any distinction, are given based on priority of thought. He wants, first and foremost, to highlight the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ one last time to them. Grace is one of the great themes of the Bible. Man has fallen and man needs grace for his salvation and for continued walk with the Lord. Paul asks for this marvelous blessing to be bestowed upon his audience. In this petition, it is understood that they are undeserving of it. One cannot merit grace. I think you're probably going to hear that in this coming Sunday sermon. Therefore, the petition is one of hope that this unmerited favor of the Lord Jesus Christ will continue to be lavished upon them. Sinners already saved by that grace. He next focuses on the love of God. The term God here is certainly speaking of God the Father. This is evident by naming the naming of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit in the same verse. Albert Barnes describes the words of this clause saying, 
The love of God brings salvation, imparts comfort, pardons sin, sanctifies the soul, fills the heart with joy and peace. And Paul here prays that all the blessings, which are the fruit of that love, may be with them. This logically follows the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. In order, in order, because one cannot truly experience the continuous and eternal stream of the love of God without first being reconciled to him. It is through the grace of Christ that this occurs. Though it is an, also an act of the love of God, without receiving the grace by faith, one cannot continue in the love of God. However, once the gift is received, the love of God will be realized and reveled in. Paul's final words of the epistles close with the words, and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. The communion or fellowship of the Holy Spirit is something that not all believers fully experience. One is sealed with the Holy Spirit upon belief, which is Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. At that moment, they receive the guarantee of eternal life and they receive the fullness of the Holy Spirit. They will never, ever, ever, ever receive more of the Spirit. However, this doesn't mean that they will experience the fullness of what they have received. In Ephesians 5.18, Paul tells us to be filled with the Spirit. In the Greek, it is an imperative, but it is also, as I said earlier, in the passive. This means that we are not actively, but passively filled with the Spirit. This then means that he will fill us as we yield to him. This is done through prayer, praise, worship, fellowship, and study of his word. It is through these things that we are filled with his Spirit. We have all of the spirit we will ever receive, but he can get more of us as we yield to him. In yielding, we will enter into fellowship with him. It is this blessed state which Paul prays will come upon his audience at Corinth, and thus us, as he writes to them. It is something they were surely lacking, but something that his letter of love to them hopes for. May it be with us as he has prayed for them. The final word, amen, is apparently missing from most early manuscripts, and therefore many scholars suggest that it is a later edition by a scribe. Whether this is so or not cannot be precisely determined. No matter what, it is something that Paul would have surely said in his heart, even if it was unstated with his pen. It means, so be it. And this would have been Paul's fervent desire for the people at Corinth. Life application, you now have made it through 257 verses of the book of 2 Corinthians. You are next admonished to carefully evaluate the coming, the coming book of Galatians, a book which contains 149 wonderful verses of doctrine for our understanding. Stay tuned as we prepare ourselves for that journey by relying on the very benediction which has been bestowed upon us by Paul at the end of this marvelous letter. 2 Corinthians. We're going to say a prayer and then I got something to do. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the chance to get into this wonderful book of 2 Corinthians. We thank you that it is such a marvelous treat and it has just filled our soul with wisdom and knowledge as we have studied it. And we pray that it was handled properly and that there were no uh, theological errors in what was presented. And we will be in Galatians next week. We pray that unless you come first for us, that uh, it will be handled properly and that people will be uh, blessed and will benefit by the instruction in that marvelous book. Out of the 66 books of the Bible, it is one of my 66 favorites, and I am so thankful we're going to get into it. Lord, we love you and we thank you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. One week short. Of
months. One week short of six months. I actually checked that this morning. So we uh, we're on the same uh, same page. Same calendar. I, same calendar. Yes. Now I have something. I rushed through that because we've got twenty minutes. I rushed through that because I wanted to do something. I didn't know if we'd get done, if we'd have 40 minutes left, or if we would have um, uh, five minutes. And so I thought, I'm just going to, I want to get this done just so that everybody has something on their head about something uh, that's kind of on my mind. And I will do this more lengthy. I did it a year or two ago in a prophecy update. But, um, it, and I've got to rush, so no, no questions. We're just going to do this right now. What I'm going to talk about here, just for a few minutes, because we've just finished two, two uh, Corinthians, is... Uh, the timeline of the rapture, okay? It, just so that people are aware of it because it's something that we forget very easily and I'd like people to be aware of it. Let me get my Bible in case uh, we need to have that right handy. Okay, I'm going to ask you a question. How long is the peace deal with Israel set to be? Seven years, okay. Seven years. We're going to go to Daniel 9 really quickly. I don't know if we'll get this done in the next 20 minutes, but we're going to try Daniel 9, and we're going to go to verses 24 through 27, okay? Uh, this is kind of important to understand this because people question, is the rapture pre or mid or post-trib? Uh, we can know. It's so simple, and yet people get all these convoluted ideas in their head about it. So here we go. 70 weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city. 70 weeks means a period of 77, seven, 70 years of seven years, okay, which is 490 years. For your people in your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. I'm whipping through these verses. We could do a three-hour study on them, but I'm just reading them to you. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, that means until Christ comes, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. Seven plus 62 is 69. That's right, 483 years. Okay, and after the 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. That means there's a period of seven years left, okay? Not for himself. That means he's going to die for the people of the world. And the people of the prince who is to come, who was the prince that came? Titus. Titus came. It's the Romans. The people of the prince who is to come. The prince came, who is Titus, but it's saying the people of the prince who is to come. Uh, I'm sorry. Forget Titus. The people of the prince to come. You are right. The prince to come is the Antichrist. That, who is, that is who that is speaking of. The people of the prince to come are the Romans under Titus. That's what I wanted to say. Okay, so read that again. And the people of the prince who is to come, the prince is speaking of the Antichrist, okay, shall destroy the city. The Romans destroyed the city under Titus and the sanctuary. The end of it shall be with a flood, and till the end of the war, desolations are determined. Verse 27, here it is. This is the timeline for all of the prophecies that we need to know. Everything else has to fit into this in the New Testament. Then he, meaning the prince who is, go back to verse 26, and the people of the prince who is to come, the prince who is to come is the Antichrist, then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. If you're a Reformed theologian, you will say that that he is Jesus. And it's speaking of a seven-year covenant. It doesn't make any sense. It's just very poor theology, but we'll just skip over that. And we'll talk about that some other time. Um, he, the Antichrist, shall bring to an... Let me go back and read that again. Then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week, one period of seven years. But in the middle of the week, in the middle of the week, which means after three and a half years, 
He, the Antichrist, shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering, and on the wing of abomination shall be one who makes desolate, even until the consummation which is determined is poured out on the desolate. Okay, so we have seven more years coming. Everybody, that's what this says, correct? Everybody's got that. The Antichrist is going to make a deal with Israel for seven years, and at the halfway point, at three and a half years, He's going to stop three and one half, three and one half years. He's going to stop the sacrifice and offering. Okay, so that's the timeline. We don't need to worry about anything other than that because Daniel got this prophecy to show us that there is a timeline that's going to be done. Okay, who is it that confirms this covenant with Israel? We just read it. Who is it? The Antichrist. Okay, and the same person who signs it will break it at the middle of the seven-year period. That's seven final years of law. That is a, under the dispensation of the law, actually. It's not under the dispensation of grace because the church is not here. This is the dispensation of law. You've got two different dispensations. This is the dispensation of law, okay? Seven more years coming there. Why is it the dispensation of law? Because it's promised to the people of Israel under the law. They're going to have a temple, okay? So, this is all clear. It's all explicit. Can anybody here disagree with that? Seven more years, Antichrist, it's going to be cut off halfway through, and it is the dispensation of law. That's all explicit. We don't need to argue over it because that's what the Bible says. Okay, so we've got that. The seven-year covenant is confirmed by the Antichrist, but that, that won't happen until after what? Until after the restrainer is removed. You can say rapture, but at this point I'm being technical because that's what the Bible says. After the restrainer is removed, but that means if you're a dispensationalist, it means the rapture. Okay, we know this is the case. All right. Nothing, I want you to know, I said this during the Bible study, I'm going to say it again right now. Nothing of Revelation 4, verse 2 through 19 through 1910 refers to the church, it is all directed to Israel. If you try to take Revelation 4, verse 2 to 19, verse 10, and determine when there is going to be a mid or a post-trib rapture, you've made an error because you're mixing dispensations. The dispensation of the law is being spoken of from Revelation 4, 2 to Revelation 19, 10. So you don't need to go any further with people that give you an analysis saying that this is going to be mid-trib. You don't need to do that because it's a different dispensation. Does everybody see that? It's right there in the book of Daniel. If you don't know Daniel, you're not going to get this right. Okay, so 4.2 through 19.10 refers to the church. I'm sorry, um, uh, nothing of it refers to the church. The words are directed to Israel, looking to justify a mid or a post-tribulation post rapture from there does not work because the words were not written about the church. Dispensations have been mixed. Okay, 1 Thessalonians 4. 13 through 17 are the actual order of the events that are going to happen at the rapture. Do we have time? we got 15 minutes. We'll try to get this done. I'll read it very quickly. What's that? 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians 4. Let me read it, okay, because I got the microphone above me. All right. 1 Thessalonians 4. This will take just a second. Okay. 1 Thessalonians 4, and then we want to read uh, 13 through 17. But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. 
For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Okay, that's the order of the events that are going to happen in the rapture. All right. Then we have in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 13, I think I'm looking for. It says, I'm sorry, 5, 1 through 3. In 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 through 3. But concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you. For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord is what? It's these seven years. It's the day of, it's the tribulation period. That the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. For when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman and they shall not escape. Okay, the times and the seasons Paul writes about. We don't know when that's going to happen. People that are out there trying to predict the rapture have made a fundamental error because they have disregarded Jesus' words in Acts 1, verses 6 and 7, which uses the same terminology. It is not for you to know the times and the seasons which the Father has put under his own authority. Okay, We're not going to know that. If you're trying to predict the rapture, you are making a fundamental error in your theology. Okay, and Paul repeats that right there, but he does say that this is coming. We're just not going to know when it happens, and it's going to be preceded by an event called the rapture. We're going to show that in just a second. All right, so he says in verses 5, 4, and 5, let me read them to you, but you, brethren, are not in darkness so that this day should overtake you as a thief. You are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of the night. Or of darkness. Everybody got that? He's using some terms there that you need to pay attention to. 2 Thessalonians 6, 10 through, I'm sorry, 1, 2 Thessalonians 1, 6 through 10, let me read this to you, refers to the tribulation coming upon the world. After that, 2 Thessalonians 2 gives the timeline for what will occur as is laid out next. So first I'm going to read you 1 Thessalonians 1, 6 through 10. Since it is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you and to give you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, these shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power." when he comes in that day to be glorified in his saints and to be admired among all those who believe because our testimony among you was believed. Okay, so we've got that right there. It says there that 2 Thessalonians 1, 6 through 10, which I just read you, refers to the tribulation which is coming upon the world. After that, 2 Thessalonians 2 gives the timeline for what will occur as is laid out. So I'm going to read you this, 2 Thessalonians 2, starting in verse 1. Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, our gathering to him, that is speaking of what? Absolutely right. It's the rapture. We don't even need to go any further because we're being gathered to him, okay? We ask you not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled 
either by spirit or word or by letter, as if from us, as though the day of Christ, that's synonymous with the day of the Lord, okay? The day of Christ did come. Let no one deceive you. This is the anchor that you need to understand. He is speaking about the day of Christ, okay? Everybody got that? That's the day of the Lord. He says, as if from us, as though the day of Christ had come. He's saying that the day of Christ, the day of the Lord, has not come. Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come. Now, those are inserted by the translators, those words right there. That day will not come, but it is appropriately inserted. They're saying that that day won't come. I'll read it without it, and you'll see what I'm saying. Let no one deceive you by any means, for unless the falling away comes first, when they say that day will come, it's referring to the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord will not come until the falling away comes first, and the man of sin is revealed. Here's a question for you. How many years will there be for the covenant, the final seven years of Daniel? How many? It says right there, seven years. We went to Daniel and we figured that out. It says, who signs the covenant with Israel? The Antichrist. Does everybody see that? There's seven years. The Antichrist signs the peace deal. That's why he's the Antichrist. And what does it say here? That day, meaning the day of Christ, the day of the Lord, this period right here, will not come unless the falling away comes first and the man of sin is revealed. How can we know who the man of sin is if we're still here? He says, we're not going to know. It's so simple. It's just so basic. You've got seven years coming. The day of the Lord is coming. This is the day of the Lord, right? Day of the Lord. Okay. And we know that we will not know who he is. He just said it right there. So therefore, the rapture has to come before that seven-year period, which is already spoken of by Daniel. Back in Daniel 9. If you don't know Daniel 9, you're not going to know what the proper orders, or actually you can know. It's just that people want to insert other things into there. So we'll read it again. That day will not come unless the falling away comes first and the man of sin is revealed. This day is not coming until the Antichrist is revealed. And we're not going to know who he is, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he sits in as God in the temple of God showing that he is God that's at the three and a half year point where he stops the sacrifices and offerings which is referred to back in Daniel he's been revealed three and a half years later he stops the sacrifices and offerings he says I'm God I'm going into the temple that is the sequence of events that day is not going to come because we're not going to know it because we're out of here if we know who he is then we miss the rapture that's what that's saying okay do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And now you know what is restraining him, that he may be revealed in his own time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. Some people say it's the church. Some people say that it's the Holy Spirit. It doesn't make any difference because if the Holy Spirit leaves, the church leaves. Okay? Now, people will say, well, how can that be? Because God is everywhere. He is specifically putting himself in the believers. We are sealed with the Spirit, Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. That is what's being taken out of. The Holy Spirit is omnipresent. He's everywhere at all times, but his, his presence is more seen in certain places. That's evidence from the uh, presence of the Lord in the temple and at the tabernacle back in the Old Testament. That's a picture of what we have in us. We are 
sealed with the Spirit. That is what's taken out of the way. The Holy Spirit is still going to be here. He's going to be here forever because he's everywhere and always. But whether it's the church or whether it's the Holy Spirit, it's the same thing. We are being taken out of here. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. Ketote apocalyptithisetai. Okay, I kind of blew that, but until he is taken out of the way, and then he will be revealed. And then he will be revealed. Okay, as it says, and then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. Okay, we're not of the darkness. This is a period of darkness. We're of the light. We're sons of the light. This is a period of darkness. We're not of that. Paul just said that in what? Uh, verses 1 through 6, 2 Thessalonians 1, uh, 6 through 10, I think it was. Anyway, we're not of that. And so we are out of here. And the timeline in Daniel is set. There's seven years. The man of sin will be revealed who's going to sign the covenant. If we're not going to be here when that happens, that means that we have to be pre-tribulation rapture. Anybody see that? It's so simple. It's basic stuff. People complicate these things greatly. They take them and they complicate them when the timeline is very, very simple. Okay, now I will do a, a larger uh, uh, talk on this at some point, and I'm going to lay it all out, and then you can have a copy of it, and I'll print it off and everything. But don't believe people when they say it's a mid-tribulation rapture. Where do they get their information from? They get it from the book of Revelation after chapter 4, verse 2, which isn't written to the church at all. It is written about Israel. The church is, you know, a recipient of the letter, but that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that that is the dispensation of the law, okay? You can't get the theology for a rapture out of those verses. It has to come from these verses, and that's what it shows, pre-tribulation rapture. A couple verses is all you need to understand that. You had a question, we got to go. Go ahead, Jim. No. Oh, okay. All right. We got to go. We got to say a prayer and get out of here. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the chance to uh, review this simple issue and, uh, uh, hopefully we'll get a better presentation of it put together in the near future where people can understand this and to not be led astray by some false teaching that says we have to endure some type of punishment in order to be cleansed, in order to be purified when Christ already did that for us. He's already taken care of this for us, and all we are waiting for is the day when he translates us to glory. May that day be soon, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You know, Charlie, there's several verses that say that we're not going to any land.